Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, again, we welcome you. It encourages us that you're here. It's exciting that nearing $18,000 was donated, given this morning for the Forever Family Fund. And it's exciting to think of the good that God can do with that. And each that generously gave to that, of course, gratitude to you, but glory be to God. We realize that we have nothing to give unless God has first given it to us if it's good. And so we are thankful uh, that God has blessed us richly and that we can share that. I want to share with you uh, something you can really look forward to this coming week. This coming Sunday morning, Matt Vega is going to be preaching on Sunday. Uh, one of the three gospel meetings that I do each year. Uh, this will be my third and final one of the year. Uh, I'll be just in a small church outside of Dixon, Tennessee. And um, we've invited, invited Matt Vega to come in and preach Sunday. He lives down in Mobile and he is the uh, dean of the law school there, the Jones School of Law. And just a reminder, some of you that have been here a while, if you've forgotten who he is, he is the only preacher. He's not, he doesn't call himself a preacher, but he does a powerful job teaching and preaching. He's an attorney. But he's the only one that I have ever seen come and speak at a place. And when he finished speaking, people asked him if he would stay after church and deliver another message. And that was a few years ago here on a summer faith lesson. And so we got back up and extended the invitation and then said, if anybody wants to stay, uh, we've asked him if he would stay and do another lesson. And the majority of the adults, at least, uh, they stayed. And, and he, he's just an amazing guy. He uh, graduated from Fried Hardeman and he got accepted into Yale, the number one law school in America. Uh, he was there with co-students around him were sons and daughters of Fortune 500 CEOs, congressmen's children, dignitaries from other countries. And what became very clear was it was only him and one other person in this class that was conservative in their thoughts. And so he was mocked and he was challenged. And then he also was leaned upon as they were training uh, to study law to see what a conservative mind that was a brilliant mind would think. And uh, from there, he went to Fortune 5, to, to uh, FedEx and became involved in their international law. And that's what he was doing the last time he was here. Uh, but then uh, he wanted to go and, and to teach. And now he's just this past a few months been named dean uh, of, of the law school, which is a, a tremendous uh, task. And uh, so look forward to him. Be praying for the work uh, that he'll be doing and preparing. And uh, we are so thankful that he's willing to make the long drive at a very, very busy time in his life. And so be looking forward to that. And before I get into less, I just want to share one more thing to you that's amazing how small the world is in the Lord's kingdom. And it's amazing how uh, good can travel, encourage people for hundreds of miles. Uh, this past weekend, I spoke at a lectureship in Meridian, Idaho, which is just the outskirts of Boise, Idaho. And a fellow came up to me afterwards and he said, hey, I've got to show you a text I've just received. He said, and this fellow was from Houston. And he said, the church that I go to and that he preaches at, he said, a brother there knew that I was at this lectureship and so he looked it up online. He said, then he saw that a fellow named David Shannon that's from the Mount Juliet Church of Christ was going to be there. I have a message for you to give to, 
to the Mount Juliet Church of Christ. Tell them, thank you so much, and it's still hard for us to believe that a fellow that did not know a family drove a truck, a moving van, from Mount Juliet, Tennessee, all the way to Houston to help a family out that had an extra truck that they didn't know how they were going to get there. And I immediately turned and looked at the guy. He said, do you know what I'm talking about? I said, that's Glenn Kaufman. And I said, I know that surprises you to think that a guy that didn't even know the family would volunteer to drive that many miles. But if you know Glenn, it doesn't surprise you at all. What a blessing it is. And again, we're thankful to Glenn and we give God the glory for it. But do you realize that's the power when the Christian life is being lived out? Christians will give and sacrifice so generously that, that others would think that makes no sense. But yet, how much has been given generously to us? And naturally, that's what we are to do in return. And so we love and appreciate the Kaufman family and we love and appreciate uh, the good that he has done that, that has um, surely brought glory to God. Moral theistic deism. Earlier, we looked at this picture where when you look at it at a glance, it looks pretty normal, but then you notice the people in the top right-hand corner and you say something's wrong. And so you rotate it just a quarter of a turn there and you realize that it's the guy reading the newspaper is the, the one lying on his back and, and the other two are just propped up there. And it reminds you that when you look at something, maybe you need to look at it from a little bit different angle. Maybe you need to stop and evaluate things more carefully. And so what we're trying to do in this short series, two-part series, here is evaluate our faith. And instead of just, just quickly saying, my faith's fine. I believe that there's a God. Everything's okay. What if everything's not okay? In other words, where did your faith come from? What do you really believe in? And are we willing to drill down deeper to see really who are we as people of faith and what really is our faith in? With that in mind, I'd like to remind you of Hebrews, the 11th chapter and verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who what? Diligently seek him. Where is our faith to come from? Our faith is to come from diligently seeking God. Not diligently seeking what we want in life, what makes us feel good or what we might view as a good or appropriate way to do things. But instead to say, I am devoting my life to God. I want to seek His will in all things. And that is where my faith will come from. A quick review. We'll read these quickly and go into new material. But Christian Smith received a lily endowment, surveyed thousands of youth across America and gave long two-hour interviews to hundreds of other youth. And what he found is that most people today that claim a faith in Jesus share actually the same faith and they don't even know they share the same faith. Their creed would be made of five tenets. Number one, God exists who created and orders the world and watches over human life on this earth. Number two, God wants people to be good nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. That second one especially gets in to the idea of, of this term, the moralistic. In other words, God just wants me to be good. But what's interesting, the deeper you study this study, is that then you say, well, who defines what is good? 
Well, that's where the therapeutic comes in. Number three, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. And so ultimately, it's the idea that there's not a, an almighty God that we submit and yield to. It's really the idea that we are the center and God and everything else in our faith yields to us. We need to feel good. We need to be happy. And so then that backs up. That's moral therapeutic. That's a therapeutic. Now back up to the moral. So what is the standard of what is right? Whatever makes me feel good. And so it is literally the therapeutic part that ultimately creates in this faith the moralistic part. And then we read the fourth one that he, he, he found in his studies. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he is needed to resolve a problem. And this is where the word deism comes from. And he explains, and I mentioned to you before, it's not the classic 18th century deism where, where God creates and totally steps back and has no involvement. But it's, it's just borrowing from that word to say it is the idea that God is distant. And so God creates, he steps back, but the good news is if you need him to help you feel good, all you got to do is say a prayer and he'll sweep in and he'll answer your prayer just because he wants you to feel good. And then the fifth one, good people go to heaven when they die. So since everyone gets to figure out what is, quote, good based on what they like, naturally, everybody's good. And so the idea today of, of walking around America and talking to people that believe that they are lost is really becoming a rarity. Most everyone you see today truly believes with all their heart they're saved. I remember 20 years ago sitting down on a regular basis and studying with individuals one-on-one. -on -one. And it was very, very common to sit down with someone that would tell you, I believe I'm lost. I still sit down with individuals regularly and study the Bible, except I know this almost every time. Hardly ever would they begin the study by saying, when I'm a lot of times just simply ask, what's your relationship with God? Are you saved? 99 point something percent of the time, they're going to say, Almost shocked at the question. Well, of course I'm saved. What is the faith that we read about in the Word of God? I've just briefly shared with you that faith that is so common and prevalent in America today. But is that the faith that we read in the Word of God or is there something different? Before we dive into that, that is so important, I want to take just a moment for us to listen to the words that were used when these interviews were being given, Christian would, would tape them and then take them back for a secretary to transcribe them. And then they did some word counts. And so out of hundreds of interviews that were two hours in length oftentimes, the words that dealt with obeying God was only used 13 times. Now keep in mind, these interviews were about, tell us about your faith. Tell us about the church you attend. How does that affect your day-to-day -day life? Drilling, hopefully, deep into these people's faith, these young people's faith, and out of the hours and hours of transcript, only 13 times did anyone speak of obeying God. Only nine times they expressed love for God. 
Only seven times did anyone refer to the resurrection or the rising again of Jesus. Only six times did anyone give glory to God. Only six times did they speak of salvation when the whole interview was about their faith. Only four times did they speak of God as Trinity. Only three times did they speak of grace. Because keep in mind, if everybody's saved, you don't need grace. Only three times did they speak as the Bible is holy. Who needs a Bible when you get to set the standard of truth? Only three times did they speak of honoring God. Brother, are you listening to this? Hours and hours by hundreds of interviews. Now you've heard those numbers. Are you ready for this? 2,000 times the phrase feel happy was used. Let that sink in. Grace three times. Feel happy was used three, two thousand times. The core of America's faith today, just like for those of us that, that and I don't mean this in a derogatory towards way towards anyone. I'm just cutting to the chase here. The core for those that are truly Christians, Christ-like, we can quickly exclaim the core of everything we are goes back to Christ. The most common religion today in America, the core of it is people's happiness. That is what drives them to define their moralism. That's what drives them to believe that God is in business just to offer a cosmic therapy for them. God does what he does to make me happy. And the deism, the beautiful part, I don't have to have him in my life making me feel guilty. I take him and put him in a back closet when I want to do what I want to do. But good thing he's there to answer my prayers when I need him in my life. Friends, tonight... I want you to think about this term faith. And I want you to think with me of Ephesians 4 and verse 5 where he says, there is one Lord. How many Jesus Christ are there? There's one Lord. And there is one faith and one baptism. Do we have a cultural faith or do we have the one faith that is taught in the holy word of God? Is this faith important? Look with me, if you will, at this slide as we think of, of four key verses as we ask this question, is our faith important? If so, why is it important? Hebrews 11 and verse 6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Or look at Romans, the fifth chapter and verse 1. We are justified by faith. Or Galatians 3 and 26, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. Or Ephesians 2 and verse 8, by grace you have been saved through faith. Is faith important? According to those four scriptures we've just read, if you're going to please God, you have to have faith. If you're going to be justified, you understand what the idea of justification is. You stand before the Lord on the day of judgment. And if Jesus Christ hasn't paid for the price of your sins, you pay for the price of your sins. And the wages of sin is death, eternal condemnation. 
And so either we have come to the Lord for Christ to justify our sins, or we stand on the day of judgment and we pay the price for our own sins. Okay, I want the Lord to justify my sins. Lord, what do I need to do? He says, that will require your faith. And in the scriptures, it's talking about an obedient faith. Or in Galatians 3 and and 26 there, is it important to have faith? If you want to be a child of God, you have to have faith to be a child of God. Or if you want to be saved, you have to have faith. And so then that leads us to this question. What produces it? If it's so important, I can't be a child of God. I can't be saved. I can't be justified. I want this faith. So what produces it? Do I need to go out and study what I want? Do I need to evaluate my life and see what drives me and and what do I want out of life? Now, remember, life's not all about you. Life's about you submitting yourself to the one that life is all about, and that's the Lord. And so, let's look at some scriptures that talks about how to develop this faith. Romans 10 and 17 says, Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. Now, that word of God is sometimes and frequently called gospel. So when we read Romans 1 and 16, we see that this faith can be produced by hearing the word of God. In Romans 1 and 16 says the gospel, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For what? It is the power of God unto salvation. Or that same gospel is called in 1 Corinthians 1 and 18, the message of the cross And then he goes on to say, those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Or if you have your Bibles, turn with me to James, the first chapter. And I would like for us to look at just a few verses there in James, the first chapter, because he talks about this gospel, this word of God. And he tells us that we just need to get it and lay it on the dashboard of our car and we'll have a great faith. We just need to get it and set it in the middle of a coffee table. You remember those days? Maybe we do need to have it more in the center of our homes. But I remember the days when a lot of homes would keep a coffee table with a Bible on it. But that's not enough. Where is the word of God to be? Look with me, if you will, in James first chapter. We're going to begin reading at verse 21 here. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness. Notice this. The implanted word which is able to save your souls. He says, take this word and plant it on your coffee table. Put it in the backseat of your car and let it ride around all week. No. He says, take this word and implant it in you. What's going to build your faith? We've already studied that. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. What do we do with this word of God? It must be implanted in us. We can't have a saving faith unless we're willing to take the time to learn and live the Word of God. And this is how he says this over the next few verses. But be doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, that's the word of God, and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer, but he is a doer of the work. This one will be blessed in what he does. What's James saying? If you want to have saving faith, the word of God has to be internalized. 
And then it can't stop there. Then you go out and you do it. We would usually say, you live it. Or we might say, you submit to it and obey it. And he said, let me give you an illustration. We all are accustomed to looking at a mirror. You've probably thought about this before, but why do you look at a mirror? Unless you're vain and arrogant, you look at a mirror to make corrections. Now, if you kind of like yourself too much, you look at a mirror to admire yourself. Wow, look how great I am. And you don't feel like you need to make any corrections. But most of us get up every morning and we look in the mirror to see what needs to be changed. We evaluate in the mirror to see if what we have done is appropriate and best. Did I put on the right shirt with the right pants? Whoa, you look in the mirror, I didn't realize this doesn't match. He's saying, take and implant the word of God and then allow it to be a mirror where you look into the word of God and you allow it to direct your steps every day. It identifies when things are right in your life and it identifies when things are wrong. Don't be a forgetful hearer where, where you look in the mirror and then you walk away and make no changes. Constantly keep your eyes in God's word. It becomes our mirror. What are the elements of this faith? I'd like for you to think about really what does make up faith. And we have to some degree already studied some of this right here tonight in this lesson. But I'd like for you to think, first of all, there is an ascent of knowledge. It is impossible to have the faith that God wants us to have without being a student of God and His Word. In other words, we've talked about the fact that we can't just go from an internalized view where we say, well, this is what I want, this is what I desire, because then we're back to that moralistic, therapeutic deism. But instead, it's, it's what God would ask of us. Turn, if you will, to Romans, the 10th chapter. In Romans, the 10th chapter, if I had to pick out one verse in the Bible that probably best describes what we're studying right now, this moral therapeutic deism, this would probably be one of the top passages that I would go to. Notice what Paul writes in Romans 10 and verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Wait a minute, Paul. You're telling me everybody's not saved? He said, that's right. But he said, it breaks my heart that everybody's not saved. He said, it breaks my heart and I pray about it. And my deep desire is that they would be saved. Well, Paul explained to us what might be the condition of someone's faith that's not saved. Did you notice that? He didn't say, oh, Israel has no faith in God. Israel believed in God. He literally is identifying a group of people that believe in God and he says, they're not saved and my heart breaks over that. So notice how he describes them in verse two. For I bear them witness. In other words, he says, I can tell you one thing good. I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God. But notice this contrast, but not according to knowledge. They're excited about God. They say they live for God. But the problem is they haven't gathered their knowledge from the right source. And this is the way he describes how they gathered their knowledge. Verse three, 
For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It begins and ends with Christ if you're going to define righteousness. Well, Paul, Israel that you're talking about here, what's the problem? He said they didn't look to God for their righteousness. God sent them Christ and they left Christ out of their faith. But, but you know they're trying to live a faith. Oh, he says, I know. Because they left out God's righteousness, they sought to establish their own righteousness. Well, Paul, isn't that good enough? They're people of faith. They, they really feel good about what they're doing. Isn't that good enough? Absolutely not. Friends, where are we getting our knowledge? When we call ourselves people of faith, is it just some kind of notion that we've gotten in our head? Well, this is what faithful people do. Are you listening? Open up book, chapter, and verse and show what you believe are tenets of your faith. And if you can't do that, you need to really evaluate where your faith came from. You say right now, oh, I really believe I'm saved. Okay, take the Word of God and prove that you are. Oh, I, I really believe all good people are going to heaven. Okay, open the Word of God and prove that all, quote, good people are going to heaven. What is it that you believe? Why do you believe it? This one faith that comes from Jesus Christ, note this. If it is not built upon the knowledge that comes from the Scriptures, it's impossible to obtain it. Second, trust is required. Once we learn what God asks of us, we have to decide, are we going to be willing to trust that God is right? If you want to read a powerful two verses on this, back up just a few pages to Romans the third to Romans the third chapter. We just read in Romans 10. Back up to Romans 3. Now, as you're, as you're doing this, you remember that game that sometime we, we play called the trust game? And it's different versions of it, but ultimately it's, it's the idea of blindfolding someone and, and you're asking them to fall back and trust that someone catches them or there's an obstacle course and you're asking someone that, that is not blindfolded to take them by the hand and to lead them through that. We've all seen that kind of thing. When you hear the Word of God, are you willing to take God's hand and be led through that or no? We either walk by faith or we walk by sight. A lot of us are not willing to take God's hand and allow Him to lead. We want to pull the blindfold down and say, Lord, I want to do it my way. I trust my way better than your way. Notice what he says here in Romans the third chapter in verse 1 and 2 here. What advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? You see what he's saying here? He's saying, when it comes to individuals that have an advantage, did, did the ones that grew up as the children of God being and having this close relationship with God throughout the years, did they have any advantage? And notice how he answers it in verse 2 with an exclamation mark. Much in every way. He says, you want to talk about whether or not the Jews had an advantage? He's saying, absolutely yes. 
Much in every way they had an advantage. Notice how he finishes this thought. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. The word committed out there is the idea that it was invested in them, it was deposited in them, and if in turn they would have trusted it, they would have had a head start over everyone. It comes down to not whether or not God is right. It comes down to whether or not we're willing to learn His way and trust Him that He is right. You remember Proverbs 3, 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord in all your ways. And then the third one is obedience. We assent in knowledge to where we learn what the will of God is. But then we have to decide, do we trust Him enough? And if we trust Him enough, we obey. The faith that God is asking us to have, that one faith, is always talking about an obedient faith. It's not strictly an intellectual, that first part. It's not strictly that. It's taking what we learn and deciding that we trust God and we go out and we live it. What a blessing that is. As we close, I'd like to show you this pyramid of life. Some of you I know have, have seen this and I want you to think about what we've just studied. The first two layers of the pyramid of life are things that are below the line of visible. In other words, these are things that nobody else can see, but yet it affects that third layer, which are the things that can be seen. Now, think for just a moment. On the bottom layer is your belief. The next layer are your values or your conviction. And whatever your belief is forms your convictions. And whatever your convictions are, that's where your actions come from. So see, there's a big question. Is your belief built around the fact that your faith centers around you? Everything is for you to feel good, to be happy. If so, then your convictions, what you believe are right and wrong, they are based upon what you want. And so your actions... Your actions are a result of you, your desires, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, the pride of life. But what if instead our belief is around the core of Jesus Christ? Our faith is in Christ. His holy word of God is truth. Well, then that's going to form our conviction that everything in our life, we want to submit to God and his word. And so then our behavior is like looking in a mirror. The more we grow spiritually, the more we look like the message we read. And this message, if we could fulfill it perfectly, we'd look exactly like Jesus Christ. It ultimately comes down to what do you believe? Who are you going to put at the center of your faith? You or Christ? I want to encourage you to really give that some thought. Not just right now. But pray about that and look at it this week. And then listen to the world around us. 
It's very obvious when you listen to the world around us what is the base of their pyramid. Even people that declare faith. Who is their faith really in? But we're about to sing a song of invitation that's not for everybody else. It's for me and it's for you. And each of us can decide, is there anything we need to do in our life right now to take a step closer to God? Are you ready to be immersed in Christ for the mission of your sins? Are you ready to come back repenting? See, that's saying, I don't feel good. And I'm sorry for what I've done. I realize there's an absolute truth that I have disobeyed. And I want to come back to God and I want to seek His forgiveness. Listen, when I say these words, sanctification, justification, atonement, if those words in your mind have very little meaning, are you listening young people or are you listening young Christians? If those words have very little meaning in your mind, you've fallen for the faith of America. I beg you, we've got to go back and find out What is sin? What is justification? What is sanctification? Because when we figure that out in Scripture, then we see that we need a Savior. I said it to you this morning, but I'll close with it now. Most people today that call themselves Christians could practice everything they believe about their faith without Jesus Christ. That's a staggering thought. But that's why people don't talk about salvation, justification, sanctification. It's not about a spiritual battle. It's about themselves. None of us here are above that. Let's evaluate ourselves carefully. If we can help in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.